I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, still in North America, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, way over on the other side of the Atlantic, Matt Bernico. Matt, how's it going over there? You're in the future. It's nighttime for you. It's daytime for me, which is a weird time to make a podcast. Uh, what's it going to be like five hours from now? Uh, dark. Well, not dark. Almost dark. <laughs> Getting close. <laughs> the thing about it being nighttime here that's weird is that it's, uh, it's nighttime, but the sun's still out. And I think that's pretty confusing to my, to my brain. <laughs> mm, that is confusing. It should be dark. Yeah, it should be. It's 930. It's still light outside. Uh, it should be dark. But and yet it's not who who can say what's going on over here. But it's been like this every day. And I guess that's just the summer um, over here in Scotland. It's great. I'm loving it. I've ridden the train. I've drank some iron brew. That's like a, a regional Scottish soda. Glaswegianal. Yeah. Class regional. Here's something wild. This is, I think, just about the UK in general. Uh, I went to the grocery store for the first time. Not for the first time. I mean, I went like big time grocery shopping, if you know what I mean. <laughs> a, a grocery shopping trip, if you will. I know what you mean. And yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do if I'm in another country is to go grocery shopping because you can see all of like the, you know, the the stuff that should be familiar, but it's not. Um, anyways, they a big a big thing in the UK is you get a pie, right? Uh, a savory pie that has stuff in it that you would eat. And I've always thought I won't eat those because I'm a vegetarian. And so, uh, you know, they've got meat in them primarily. But at the grocery store, they had a mac and cheese pie. And it is a like Whoa. pastry. Yeah. <laughs> a pastry that has mac and cheese in it. And I got to tell you, it was the best. <laughs> it was the best. It was super good. Um, so, I'm glad to hear that uh, the United States did make its way over to Scotland with you. <laughs> I think, yeah, exactly. I think it's bonkers that these pies have not made us North America, really. I think that people in the United States would, would go crazy for these great these great little guys. Yeah, I want one right now. It's like uh, one time I had a mac and cheese pizza, and I feel like it's like that. But, uh, yeah, it feels more refined because it comes from uh, the old world. I think that's important. That's true. Well, okay, it is important. It does seem more refined, but it does. I think the the flavor profile is exactly the same of mac and cheese pizza. It's pretty similar. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, I know you're getting settled in. Um, you also told me before we started recording that you have a beer that has an extremely funny name, and I just feel like our listeners also deserve to know about it. Yeah, it's a beer called Saint Mungo's, which is a he's the patron saint of Glasgow, and. Um, I couldn't tell you what he did, but I'm sure it was great. <laughs> I'm sure it was great, and we appreciate him for it. Unless it was bad, in which case, I don't appreciate him. I'll look it up later, I guess. <laughs> I feel um, like uh, we... if you pray to St. Mungo and he does answer your prayer, the miracle is called getting mungoed. I feel like you got to make that a thing now that you're there. <laughs> That's true. Anytime anything good happens to you, uh, a fortuitous moment, you get mungoed. Um, That's great. You've been mungoed. Well, You've been mungoed. Well, uh, dear listeners, I'd love to mungo you right now with a great new bit that we're doing on the podcast. Um, the last few weeks, we've been playing some funny games just to just to kick things off. Just as an icebreaker. Sometimes you need to do it. You can't just jump into the deep end too quick, uh, though we usually do that. So um, <laughs> we've been doing some stuff about, you know, televangelists and stuff. Um, but this week, we're going to play a game called Are They Secretly Christian? 
And this is about uh, I'm going to I'm going to say some band names to you and you're going to tell me if they are secretly a Christian band. Does that mm-hmm. sound OK? You, I feel like I had to kind of go off the beaten path for this one because I feel like you would know most of them. Um, so th- this is like popular secular artists that you wouldn't expect to be Christian. So so that you get the rule, though, right? You, you understand what I'm doing here. I get the rule. And just so listeners know, um, this is uh, I've never heard of this game before today. No prep. So if I do get them, I feel like I deserve a big Mungo brew. Oh, yeah. I'll throw a Mungo your way for sure. Okay, so number one, Mumford and Sons. Are they Christian or are they not Christian? They're definitely Christian because the one guy really likes uh, Jordan Peterson. That's true. He likes Jordan Peterson. Um, Also, uh, as I've learned, the band leader, Marcus Mumford, his parents are leaders in the evangelical Vineyard Church in England, and he's a member of that church even now. So that sucks. (laughs) (laughs) A net loss for Christianity, (laughs) I guess. Um, But they are evangelicals who cuss, which I feel like is uh, maybe just a particular UK brand of evangelicalism. You can't do that in the West. Well, people can cut. Christians can cuss here. That's the thing that nobody knows Um, on that side of the water. No, you can't. But the side, it's okay. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, here's the next one. Bell and Sebastian. Are they a secret Christian band? Um, I'd like to say yes, but I'm going to say no. Okay, well, you're wrong. Bell and Sebastian's primary songwriter, Stuart Murdoch, has been very open about his faith and regular involvement in his activities in his local parish in Scotland. What's up? A topical reference. Uh-huh. And he has <laughs> written biblical themes into many of his band songs. So there you go. <laughs> Bell and Sebastian, secretly a Christian band. Huh. Well, I guess that's why I would have liked to say yes. Yeah, but I feel like there must be a problem there because his name is neither Bell nor Sebastian. So I think we need to figure out yeah. what they think first. That's true. <laughs> you can come second. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, the Avett Brothers. You, you heard of them? Yeah. If they're all country, they're secretly Christian. I think that's a rule. The Avett Brothers has have emerged as a hugely popular cult band in the indie folk world and have been accepted as basically a secular act, even though a lot of their lyrics are very clearly about their Christian faith. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Secretly Christian band. Yeah. I mean, the cult thing throws it off a little bit, but I think I got it right ultimately. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Okay, here's the last one, <laughs> and I bet I bet you're gonna guess it correctly. Lenny Kravitz, a secret Christian band, <laughs> or not? Uh, Lenny Kravitz is definitely a Christian band. Yeah, that's right. Lenny Kravitz is a devout Christian. He's been writing about spiritual themes all throughout his career, and not just his lyrics. He's gone through years of celibacy as part of his faith, <laughs> and he has a large cross tattooed on his back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he has a kid, so there's material evidence that that's not completely right. It was just like a, a very long dry spell, I guess. <laughs> um, he was doing it as a joke, as a bit. A very long length and fast. <laughs> that's right. All right, Dean, you guessed him. This is from <laughs> this, this game is not very well thought out, uh, but this was from a BuzzFeed <laughs> article called 11 Bands You Might Not Realize Are Christian. <laughs> Um, I only wait. What are the other ones? That's four. Yeah, just fire like lightning around. Who are the other ones? Okay, the the other ones are pretty obvious, but you two. Yeah. Uh, So you two, Mumford and Sons, Bell and Sebastian, the Avett Brothers. Uh, The fifth one is Black Sabbath, and I feel like that's actually pretty debatable. Mm. But uh, I don't think so. You don't think so? It seems pretty Christian to you. That's okay. No, no, no. They seem not Christian to me. It's a Black Sabbath. I think that's yeah, yeah. Devils. No, I. I I agree, but this says that Ozzy Osbourne was singing about fearing the devil and a vengeful God, which makes him okay. Christian. Fair enough, no, I guess. That, it, I, I guess he's a Christian in the same way that vampires are Christians, which I guess is kind of fair, but in a way you wouldn't think. Yeah, that's true. They uh, they are Christians, but like, uh, <laughs> but they have to be. Um, Kings of Leon. <laughs> ne- I couldn't. I never would put that one together. And then uh, Evanescence is number eight. Uh, Black Rebel mm-hmm. Motorcycle Club, uh, a band I haven't heard about in at least 10 years. Uh, and then the 10th <laughs> one is so funny to me because it's Sufjan Stevens. And it's like, clearly, <laughs> if you're surprised by this, then <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Um, and then the last one is uh, The Civil Wars, which is, I don't know, who cares? 11 bands you didn't know that they're Christian. Um, and one of them is Sufjan Stevens, which I think is still very funny. We all won that game, um, I, I think. Um, but anyways, uh, now that we're past this game, we've broken the ice. We're feeling loosey-goosey and ready to chat. Uh, folks, I've got some good news for you, and that is 
we got more Hank for you this week. Last week, we talked about Franz Hinklemart and his critique of idolatry, uh, but the phones have been ringing off the hook. Everyone's been calling us. They've been emailing us. They've been tweeting at us. They want more Hink, and uh, you're all going to get it right now. I think that, uh, well, here's one way to kind of get into the, into the theme of this one. Um, Hinklemart, uh, he, we've talked about him a few times now, right? We talked about him last week about idolatry. We've talked about his book, The Ideological Weapons of Death. And this week we're talking about uh, liberation theology and kind of a, an interesting take about like the tensions between liberation theology and orthodox theology and then also liberation theology and like neoliberalism. And uh, what you get in this essay is something really funny, <laughs> funny, but also pretty provoking. Um, and here's a way to think about it. So every superhero out there, they have an alternate evil version of themselves, right? So you got Superman <laughs> and Bizarro Superman. You've got the Flash and Reverse Flash, which has got to be the worst one. Um, and then there's liberation theology. And uh, as Franz Hinklemart is going to tell us, you've got anti-liberation theology. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, of course, there's probably plenty of theology out there that's against liberation theology. But what we're talking about in this episode is the time when Michelle Camdesis, who was the managing director of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, into a theological framework for the IMF to try to like to try to make a theological jumping off point that makes the IMF seem like they're interested in helping poor people around the world <laughs> instead of, you know, being the uh, mm-hmm. the prime antagonist of their lives. Yeah. An incredibly weird thing to do. And uh, a really interesting thing. Also, uh, not the exactly main focus of this essay, which is more about maybe liberation theology and its distinctions and opponents, but this is definitely the <laughs> the big headline grabbing thing. I think in the piece, uh, one thing we mentioned in the last episode about Hinkle Merritt is that he does what nobody else does, which is reads the actual extremely boring speeches of um, people in government and finance, and uh, he makes a good, compelling case for doing it because then you come across weird things like this, where the head of the IMF is also talking about Christianity in some pretty troubling ways. So we're going to get to it. Um, we're going to get to find out why the IMF has a, a theology and what that theology is. But I think to start out, it helps to talk more broadly about the essay and kind of the themes and why Hinkle Merritt really cares about talking about that instead of just being like, here's a weird thing that happened. Um, so uh, Hinkle Merritt, as we said in the last episode, he is from Germany originally. Then he went to Chile, did a bunch of cool stuff there. After Allende became president, he was part of the kind of Christians for Socialism crew. And then he eventually was exiled like a bunch of other people in Chile um, after the the coup against Allende in 73. He moved to Costa Rica and did a bunch more work there, especially on the economy. So he's a guy who is interested in liberation theology, but also coming from like an actual experiment with socialism in a way that I think is really instructive and gives him some unique perspectives. So maybe we can start with just getting some of the liberation theology stuff on the table. Um, He provides some great explanations of what characterizes liberation theology, but I thought I'd pull out one uh, paragraph that I think makes a pretty interesting point. Sorry. Okay. He says that liberation theology is basically premised on the kind of mutual recognition between human beings, and uh, it's trying to to argue that the society that we have now doesn't allow that to happen for a lot of different reasons. And of course, people who aren't theologians can say that too. Marxists say it, other kinds of socialists say it, but theologians have a particular investment in that kind of uh, statement, that there's not mutual recognition going on because they also think that that has something to do with God. And I think Christians struggle to say that or figure that part out, or at least I do, in a way that doesn't seem like hokey or cheesy or like ending up on kind of like a live, laugh, love version of Marxism, which is not very good. Um, So uh, Hinkle Merritt puts it in a way that I think helps. He says, "Um, the absence of this mutual recognition between human beings is present in the poor. According to liberation theology, God is present wherever this acknowledgement occurs, the acknowledgement of kind of mutuality among humans. The fact that this has not happened demonstrates a human relationship bereft of God. The existence of the poor attests to the existence of a godless society, whether one explicitly believes in God or not. This absence of God is present wherever someone is crying out. 
the absence of God is present in the poor person. The poor are the presence of the absent God. Uh, this is something you kind of see um, talked about in some other people we've looked at on the show, like Ignacio Eucuria, where the poor are the crucified people. You get this kind of identification of God with the poor. But I like the way Hinkle Merritt puts it, that the poor are the presence of the absent God. And I think that is really probably the best way of sort of talking theologically about the, the economic situation, right? Is to say that this situation just does not reflect a world where God is present, where a God of love is, is around. And if we think that we should be seeing God in the world that we live in, we have to make a world that also is kind of able to uh, to receive that and prepare the way for, for God and so on. So I think uh, it's an interesting way of sort of marking what is distinct about liberation theology as opposed to other ones. Um, but as we'll see, it also has some really weird ways of twisting and turning, uh, even getting co-opted by some of its opponents. Yeah, totally. Um, I like that phrasing, though, because I, I mean, I know it's like it's a pithy statement to say that poverty is a policy choice, but it's true. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a choice that people are making uh, to exclude people from um, living a good life. And to lay it out this way, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, OK, well, let's let's get to it then. I, Hinklemark kind of starts drawing out these tensions between um liberation theology and orthodoxy that's like the second part of this essay and he's trying to explain like you know like what's the rub in the first place like why is it that orthodoxy um found it necessary i mean in in this phrase orthodoxy in this particular like reference he's talking about the catholic church right that's the orthodoxy but it's also the case too that like all kinds of other christian orthodoxies are not friendly to liberation theology um but the question is like why is it that why is it that orthodoxy has some kind of problem with liberation theology in the first place. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, one of them being is, you know, it's Marxist or whatever, but <laughs> Hinklemart makes the point that like, you know, even, even if the liberation theologians weren't citing Marx or weren't talking about Marx, they would still say the same thing about liberation theology, right? It doesn't really matter. Um, Marxism is kind of like, it, it is, uh, an important part of liberation theology, but like, in the critique of liberation theology, it's like kind of a red herring. Uh, orthodoxy would still be upset, I think, even if uh, <laughs> even if the liberation theologians didn't talk about uh, Marx at all. Um, but the central conflict that's going on around liberation theology and orthodoxy has to do with the idea of utopia and like whose utopia um, the kingdom of God actually is, or the reign of God, I guess is the phrase that we could use. That's a particular Catholic framing of the, of the idea, I guess, that's... Um, used throughout this piece but orthodoxy gives you this is kind of like paraphrasing a lot of different things in this essay and um maybe unfairly so but we can go back and talk through them if we need to uh but orthodoxy gives like an otherworldly utopia right the the reign of god in that sense is something that's like um it's it's detached it's not material it's uh it's um to put it unfairly from my particular perspective it's pie in the sky and um <laughs> only when you die uh, whereas liberation theology, on the other hand, gives like more material answers to the world. And that is the sort of rub, uh, as Hinklemart sees it, between orthodoxy and uh, and liberation theology. That on the one hand, you have the otherworldly utopia, the one that's, you know, spiritual, and then liberation theology that is material. Um, that's where the Hinklemart sees it. Uh, Dean, do you, is there anything that you'd want to add at this point, at least? No, I think that's right. It's a uh, pie in the sky versus pie in the park. The idea is that uh, if you're an Orthodox theologian or, you know, establishment, maybe we could say Christian theologian, um, you don't get pie until you die. There's there's no actualizing of that utopia. And for liberation theology, it's important to, um, you know, not to completely, like, bring that uh, future like emptied out into the present, like liberation theologians still believe in pie in the sky also, <laughs> you know, at the end, uh, <laughs> but both. they, but they think you can, yeah, you can have your pie and eat it too in liberation theology. And, uh, um, I think it, it's important to sort of, uh, recognize that because I, I like, uh, the way Hinkle Merritt sort of puts it as a challenge to say, yes, liberation theologians, they do a bunch of stuff with Karl Marx and he goes out of his way too to be like, they don't adopt Marx uncritically, and he explains why they look at Marx. They look at Marx because they want to figure out how do we actually concretize the utopian vision that we have. Um, but uh, even if they didn't use Marx, you know, and in fact, this is true in many cases when theologians don't use Marx, um, they would still be chastised. So, you know, I think of like 
Oscar Romero, for example, did not, he was explicitly not a Marxist. He was like friendly to some Marxisms, I guess, in a certain way, but like not an endorser at all and didn't draw from that tradition. Uh, you can think of tons of other uh, Christians who've tried to do stuff without being Marxist, Martin Luther King or whoever. Um, I often think of like the strange phenomenon you get when theologians start to side with the poor and they're explicitly not Marxists. And then a right wing regime will be like, you must be communists. And they're like, we promise we're not. Right. And eventually they insist that they are so much that then they do <laughs> talk with communists and Marxists. Right. So uh, it's uh, an important thing for Hinkler to point out that it's actually not the Marxism that's the problem. And in fact, drawing attention to it really forces orthodoxy to even miss the mark of its own critique, which is that the real rub is like, what do you do with the utopia? Is it immaterial and sort of floating around out there in the future and we can't really do anything to bring it here? Or is there more of a dialogical thing going on? And I think that helps to at least reframe some of the debates a bit. Yeah, totally. Uh, throughout the essay, uh, Hinklemart kind of draws out it, draws out the tension between orthodoxy and then liberation theology has an orthopraxy. You know, it's about like, what do you do if you think that... Uh, God is three in one and also, you know, became manifest in a human and all this kind of stuff. Like what's the reaction, right? And ends up being about, you know, doing things. And and that is the tension. Um, But here's a, here's a quote uh, out of the Hinklemart piece that might drive some of this in a interesting way. Hinklemart writes for liberation theologians, the problem is not one of theism and atheism, but one of idolatry and the God of life. The position contrary to belief is not unbelief. Faith in God can be idolatry or not, just as atheism can be. An atheism whose experience leads to death is idolatry. One whose experience leads to life is not. Life and death are the criteria, not abstract metaphysics. There are also atheists in the family of God. Nevertheless, the affirmation of life continues to be seen as something as starting from the mutual recognition between subjects who perceive themselves as natural and needed human beings. Hence, life and death again comfort the option for the poor. Nevertheless, the poor now have a new dimension. They're not only poor, but also victims, as they are persecuted by the apparatus of state repression. I like this framing because it does, um, I, I don't know, it steps it steps away from like a really hollow type of faith that you might actually have. Um, and it suggests that, you know, it's not really about whether you believe exactly the right things or not, but it's more about, you know, are you doing something that leads towards life? Uh, which I think is actually kind of, um, like, like you said, Dean, it might be like a, a step too close to a live, laugh, love Marxism. But I think that there's something kind of helpful in that, right? Like, are you living a life? Uh, and practicing a type of politics that does lead towards more life and abundance, or is it about death? And I think that there's plenty of Christianity uh, that you could see being particularly anti-life. Yeah, I agree. And the sort of putting the the distinction on the uh, the mark between life and death also helps to materialize it in an important way because you know the affirmation of life can seem cheesy. But it's also ma- making the the critical move in the opposite direction to say, but which systems actually affirm and promote death? <laughs> you know, and yeah. that's not a, a live, laugh, love theology. It's, uh, you know, something <laughs> something else, uh, m- more critical. Um, Hinklemere also does a lot to express why this kind of affirmation is actually a threat to the establishment in a way that other theologies maybe aren't. And I think that can be helpful. Um, So just to pull out another long quote, he says, uh, liberation theology ends up being a danger to empire for various reasons. One important reason is ideological, playing an important part during the Cold War. This Manichaean confrontation needed clear trenches. The empire interpreted itself as the Christian, parentheses, Western world, a reign of God facing a reign of atheist evil. Although the foundation of bourgeois society's legitimacy is not Christian, but rather rests on secular myths, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> uh, the religious dimension is also essential in anchoring itself in transcendence. To believe in God and fighting capitalism's side against enemies seem to be the same. The identification is stronger in the U.S. than Europe, though it also exists there. This leads to what in the U.S. is called civil religion, which is the underlying religiosity of the actual way of life in the U.S. It's the religiosity that includes all the specific religions. Therefore, the religious tolerance facing diverse faiths has as its condition the respect accorded these in the framework of the civil religion. 
religion is considered a private affair in so much as it inscribes itself in the civil religion as in public religiosity. Uh, and uh, I think that sort of point is really important because it's not only orthodox theology that gets troubled by making category uh, differences, you know, imminentizing the eschaton or whatever, but it also is putting the the gauntlet to uh, to empire or imperial theologies, of which there are very many. Um, but I think this sort of way of situating it helps Hinkelomerit also say something about idolatry that's that's interesting, right? Like um, the the struggle is not between liberation theologians as the the people who are I don't know the real Christians versus like the people who are not Christian in the, the secular United States which is a story that you sometimes get even in uh, progressive theologies. Like um, I always think of William Kavanaugh, again, just to keep picking on him, but he often will say, you know, the problem with the United States is that it's a, it has this kind of secularist disciplinary problem. Um, and if we were, I don't know, better Christians, we could recognize the idolatry of that kind of secularity. And Hinklemert is like, well, it's actually that this is a conflict of religiosities. Like uh, it's a different kind of, maybe plane on which that idolatry critique takes place. So it's like a rift within Christianity in a more complicated way. Uh, so you, again, you have that sort of fight with the Orthodox theologians on not putting uh, the, the dream of a better world, you know, far away in the future. So that's one side, but also a fight with the, the theologians of empire who are like trying to uh, create their own utopia of neoliberal capitalism you know, in your backyard or something. So that's a, a more material fight where there are two theologies kind of contending with one another. So liberation theology is that threat to that uh, that imperial theology. And just to kind of cap the quote off, he goes on to say, liberation theology threatened this religious homogeneity, even the Christianity of the empire. This was much more sensible, so much more that liberation theology had a positive reception in various churches in the U.S. and Europe, including in the general public. So there's the sense that liberation theology is also even like, you know, uh, having this like boomerang effect, I guess, and uh, coming back to trouble the imperial theology because it presents this alternative way of, uh, of thinking in a Christian way. So it's not so much the Christian West fighting the atheist liberators or whatever, but this kind of inter-Christian fight and the liberation theologians are presenting a, a different path, an alternative path for Christianity that's not bound up with that imperial appetite. Totally. I mean, you can see the the danger there too, right? That like uh, that there is another possible Christianity that's against this one. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess you could see why that would be a problem for the the, the for orthodoxy, but also for the the theology of empire. I guess, for, for lack of a better word, still still never okay actually saying the word empire because of all the baggage I think <laughs> I have with it. But but fine. Um, okay, just to drive the point home a bit further before we jump into the IMF stuff, which we're going to get to um, after the, in, in the second part of the show, in the second part of this conversation. Um, <laughs> this is just, uh, I guess, maybe stressing the, the fighting over the utopia kind of idea between orthodoxy and, and liberation theology. Hinkler Mart writes, Theological orthodoxy reproached liberation theology as having a false utopia, but they did not reproach the utopia itself. As Christian orthodoxy, it maintained its own vision of the coming kingdom of God and of the heavens. Critics could not reproach liberation theology for its hope in a kingdom of God. Therefore, this theological orthodoxy reproached it for interpreting this reign in material, bodily, and earthly terms, a false concept of the kingdom. The orthodox kingdom of God understands itself as a kingdom of pure souls, <laughs> smooth orbs bouncing around in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> there are dinosaurs there. Um, anyways, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> a kingdom of pure souls for whom corporeality is something ethereal and even ephemeral. The kingdom of God imagined on the part of liberation theologians is a new earth. It is, a, it is this earth without death. It is a kingdom in which corporeal needs are satisfied. Orthodoxy sees this as materialistic, that is to say, a false hope, to which it counterposes its version of true hope, but it does not deny the vision of the kingdom of God. Um, a great point, actually, that... Um, this is the this is exactly the point that you, you made earlier that this is the uh, you can have your pie and eat it too right both of these approaches the orthodox one and the um, liberation one they both believe in the pie in the sky but also with liberation theology you get some clarification some clarifications and some uh, more details about the pie uh, the one that you're <laughs> eating in the park that that you get before the sky I guess or something. 
But um, anyways, an interesting uh, tension between these two particular types of Christianity. Um, I think it's a really, I think it's a good, it's a good observation. I've never heard anyone put it quite like this, which I appreciate. Yeah, it's interesting too, because it helps explain why liberation theologians went to great lengths to reconcile with the Vatican or even try to explain Mm -hmm. their position to the Vatican, because like, you might assume, you know, okay, if you agree or if you disagree so strongly with the the central bureaucracy of the church or whatever, why wouldn't you just quit or leave or be Protestant? You know, this is even something other liberation theologians had said, like Ruba Malvez, the uh, Brazilian Protestant liberation theologian, famously was like pleading with Leonardo Boff to leave the Catholic Church when he was silenced, which I think is messed up. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's an inter, uh, inter-liberation theology fight, I guess. Um And uh, so the question is, like, why? Why not just leave? And I think the liberation theologians, maybe naively, but also in a revealing way, they really sense that they still have something in common with the the Ratzingers and the, you know, the John Paul II's of the world. And in fact, they often describe it being quite heartbreaking to have to have such a huge misunderstanding as they perceived it between themselves and the Vatican. And where they might try to reconcile with the Vatican, they're not going to try to reconcile with, you know, the state department. (laughs) Like that's a, that is an irreconcilable theology, the kind of Imperial theology coming from, you know, whatever the CIA and the FBI and so on um, the IMF. So I think it's helpful too to clarify that. And I hadn't really thought of it in those terms before reading this essay either, that there is a kindred spirit there. There's an agreement that the utopia is out there between the established church and liberation theologians. And it's the, the imperial theologians that basically can't imagine, you know, a world where, I don't know, everybody has their, their needs met. Yeah. This is completely off path for this conversation, but uh, I'm going to say it anyways. It, you know, a few, a few, I guess months ago now we did that episode about Michelle Sarah and, and angels. Um, there's mm-hmm. another book that we were going to do to follow that conversation up, but we never really got to it. Um, the book was called the history of the devil by Willem Flisser. <laughs> um, and it's a very interesting book. He's a, a really great media philosopher who was, uh, born in, born in the Czech Republic, fled the Nazis and then lived in Brazil the rest of his life. Anyways, he has this book about the history of the devil and the opening of the book is actually kind of similar to what we're talking about. Um, he's talking about the, um, what like you know like what at the at the very like what's the philosophical base of divinity and it is like you know this exact idea of like uh the the world of pure soul floating around out there uh as a you know perfect a perfectly spherical form uh whereas the the diabolic the devil is about the inbreaking of materiality and about how that like ruins or kind of like cuts against the uh the grain of uh of of pure soul anyways an interesting dichotomy that i think uh we probably see play out in theological conversations more often than not. Uh, in this one though, it's just about Marxism. <laughs> not really Marxism. It's about material materialism and, and politics in a different way. But anyways, just an, an interesting observation, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there is something that, you know, the devil's in the, the material details for sure for theology. Um, so, all right, we've talked enough about orthodoxy. Uh, let's get into the, the real headline here, which is the IMF and it's extremely weird liberation theology. <laughs> um, so there's this guy, Michel Kimdesis, a, a person whose name I'm probably mispronouncing cause he's French, I think. Um, anyway, also a person I would never have cared about unless Franz Hinkle told me to. And he was the secretary general of the IMF. Um, and Hinklemere does this really interesting analysis of a speech that he gave uh, in 1992 in a conference of the uh, the National Congress of French Christian Impresarios, <laughs> an incredibly wild title. Um, Hinklemere pulls out a bunch of like block quotes from this speech. And the, the key maybe is that he this guy, Kim Dessis, is using all kinds of theological rhetoric to talk about um, how much he cares about the poor and how there is a real commitment to the poor and to materiality on the part of institutions like the IMF. And uh, one thing that I think is so fascinating is that Hinklemere basically says there is something on which the theology of the IMF, as this guy articulates it anyway, 
and the theology of liberation theologians, uh, there's something where they both agree, which is namely that theology does have something to say about the poor, and it has something to say about how to materially address the poor. So there's this like really weird confluence of kind of themes and interests. And uh, he spells it out this way. Hinklemerit has this really big quote from him uh, where he says this. So introducing it, Hinklemerit writes, uh, he claims that the IMF structural adjustment and the entire neoliberal concept of the society incarnate, precisely as the humility and pride of those exercising resistance uh, arrives at, at the following conclusion. Our mandate, it is resound, it resounded in the synagogue of Nazareth, and from the spirit we are given the receiving of that which the apostles of Jesus denied to accept, precisely the realization of the promise made in Isaiah beginning with our present history. It's a text of Isaiah in which Jesus explained, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me in order to announce the good news to the poor, etc., etc. You all know the, the whole thing. And Jesus only had one short response. Today this message is fulfilled uh, for you that you should listen. This today is our today, and we are part of this grace of God, we who are in charge of the economy, the administrators of a part of it in any case. The alleviation of suffering for our brothers and the procurers of the expansion of their liberty. It is we who have received the word. This word can change everything. We know that God is with us in the work of spreading brotherhood. So Hinklemert writes, a liberation theologian could have written the text of the Secretary General of the IMF. <laughs> An incredibly weird thing to say. Camdes uh, has formulated the center of liberation theologians' evangelical interpretation, especially the promise of God's kingdom and the option for the poor. So just to kind of drive home what's going on here, Hinklemert is saying that uh, there's a way in which the IMF has theologized itself, or at least this, this particular secretary general of the IMF, uh, theologized itself to say that it is really taking on board the mission of, of Jesus uh, and materializing it through its incredibly disruptive structural adjustment programs, that it's neoliberalism that is going to deliver it. And I think that is so fascinating because just on the theological rhetoric alone, Hinklemert is like, we would, you could find the same thing in a, in a liberation theologian. And it's true. I mean, you could find the same thing in Leonardo Boff or, or Hinklemert, you know, like they say basically the same thing. Uh, but obviously the profound difference is um, how that cashes out materially or structurally how it sorts itself out. So Hinklemert, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but Matt, what do you think? Um, what do you think of the head of the IMF talking like a liberation theologian? It sucks. I hate it. <laughs> Here's the thing. So uh, I didn't know who Michelle Camdesis was before I read this. I'm not. A tr I mean, like, listen, I hate the IMF with a burning passion. I think they suck. Um, I renounce them and all their works. Uh, but I didn't really know. I didn't know this dude particularly. Camdesis was, you know, the the director of the IMF in the 90s. And in 1997, he was particularly like responsible and behind uh, the IMF's response to the, uh, the Asian financial crisis, which was a pretty big deal, a pretty big meltdown of different Asian economies. Um, and the IMF had to step in and they bailed them out. And, uh, but only on the, um, only if the, uh, the countries that they bailed out, uh, Thailand among many others, uh, if they would, you know, uh, get into the structural adjustment program uh, racket and change the way their com their countries work so that they, you know, the, the government will neoliberalize and all that kind of stuff. All that being said, like, you know, it, it's such a wild thing to be like, yeah, I, I think I, I think the gospel is about the good news to the poor. Meanwhile, like with, with your other hand, you're making sure that like <laughs> a handful of countries, um, you know, the, the people in them suffer under austerity. Right. And that is, is just like it's bonkers that you can interpret what he's doing here that way. But uh, truly, it, it is what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, it's really fascinating because I think what Hinklemert is sort of pointing to is the, the limitations of theological rhetoric. And this is also something that we talk about on the show a lot, but maybe in ways that, to me at least, so even when we've addressed it head on, always feel a little bit oversimplified or a little too canned. And we try to get out of it by saying, yeah, we're not theologians or whatever. Um, but something that Hinkle Amerit says has really brought it home to me in an interesting way. Um, so, you know, he says, all right, they think that the poor have to be, you know, they're important in Christianity and there are these material replies to it, but what's the kind of source of the primary difference here? And he says like, all right, this quote that he pulls out from Candesis is only part of his speech. He has other parts of his speech where he contradicts uh, key tenets of liberation theology. Um, but he comes down to saying uh, the IMF, 
uh, with the IMF, the negation of liberation theology was the construction of an anti-liberation theology. This anti-liberation or this anti-theology is an inversion of liberation theology. The fact that these two contrary theologies cannot be distinguished on the level of a clearly theological discussion stands out. At this level, liberation theology does not visibly distinguish itself from the anti-theology presented by the IMF. The conflict seems to be over the application of a theology shared by both sides. The theology of the empire, the theology of the IMF is the theology of empire, assumed the key elements of liberation theology, the preferential option for the poor, hope for the kingdom of God, incarnated in orthopraxis. At least this is all of its obvious appearance. And let me just add a little bit more. He says, now the question is over the realism of the concretization. No preconceived faith can give the answer. One cannot decide the truth of one of the positions without returning to empirical sciences, especially economic sciences. It is they who decide. As a result, they transform themselves into carriers of the criteria of truth about the theologies. Indeed, with neoliberal economic politics in their hand, the option for the poor is transformed into an option for the IMF. From the point of view of a political and critical economy, the option for the poor is transformed into the demand for an alternative society in which everyone has a place. Theology as theology cannot decide. Scientific results recognize the concrete content of theology. Uh, I think this is probably something that will drive a lot of uh, grad students in theology absolutely up the wall because <laughs> it's like, you know, relativizing theology as a master discourse um, and saying that there's just some things that like theology can't do. And probably you could say a little bit more than this. Like, for example, you know, the way that like, I don't know, Sabrina or Boff or Gutierrez talk about Jesus as the liberator, like, is that something that Michelle Camdesis could also say? Like, probably not. So I think that there's probably something more to it. Like, maybe there is a way of kind of having a theology that is inoculated against the IMF um, or kind of the co-optation of the IMF. But I think there's something really profound that Hinklemert points out that, like, just in the rhetoric of the preferential option for the poor or something, you can say that and say that means you should be socialist. But you can also say that and say that means you should completely gut and privatize your whole economy. And, you know, both sort of uh, economic choices are motivated by the same theological principle. And so you have to appeal to something else. You have to appeal to, you know, actual studies of what's going on in economies, which is what Hinkle Amir spent his whole career doing. And I think uh, when I say that we struggled on this podcast to like, talk through, you know, the limitations of theology, like we're always like, yeah, that's why you need Marxism, because it's going to give you a framework. And I think Hinkle Amir is saying the same thing, but like, in a way that just illustrates it really well. <laughs> it's like, it's not like you're just going to have the wrong uh, set of problems or something. You're, you also might end up saying basically the same theological rhetoric as the head of the IMF. Um, so you're going to have to find some other way of like, making sure that that's not possible, <laughs> you know, like creating an irreconcilable difference. And Marxism is one uh, economic discourse that allows you to do that. Chemdesis is never going to say whatever Karl Marx says. They're, you know, they're, they're <laughs> irreconcilable discourses. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's why, I, I don't know, people get, get really weird about theology sometimes uh, as a rhetoric. You know, it's, it's a good rhetoric. Sometimes it's like really inspiring and it does all kinds of things that, I mean, you know, probably political economy can't do as well. Mm -hmm. um, imagining utopia is probably is, is one of them, right? Um, but uh, even progressive Christians like fall into this trap. Well, they'll 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 talk about the kingdom of God, the reign of God, what it looks like, the the great other world that's you know another world that's that's possible or, or whatever. And that's all very cool. But like at the end of the day, if you can't answer the question who owns the means of production, then mm -hmm. you know there's a there's a big problem, right? Um, which is, uh, why that's one of our favorite pastimes on Twitter is yelling who owns the means of production at, uh, progressive Christians. It's great. You should try it. <laughs> you should try it. It's really important. Um, anyways, f following that thought, um, this is another, another quote from Hinklemart, uh, kind of on the same point here. Hinklemart writes, this leads to the need for the development of liberation theology along two lines. The first refers to the critique of neoliberal political economy and its respective utopianization of the market law. The second refers to the Christian tradition of a theology critical of the law. Both constitute space for a discussion that today is often summed up as economy and theology. This confirms the relevance of economic analysis for the discernment of faith content. 
Uh, I like this. I mean, this is just exactly what you're saying, right? <laughs> Make a theology so good <laughs> that it's irreconcilable <laughs> to the IMF. <laughs> um, but I think it's an important task, though, right? It has to be incompatible um, or else, uh, you know, um, what you're doing is maybe too vague. It's not saying enough. Um, it could be more specific about the the praxis, right? That's the the important piece. Yeah, and I think it's important to say Hinkle Merritt is not saying that's why we should all stop doing theology because it can't make a decision. Totally. You know, it's it's the opposite. It's like that's why we need to do more and better theology with economics so that we can make a decision or so that we can discern how our theologies can really, you know, I don't know, fund something meaningful. Um, he says a lot more to about these two tasks, uh, developing a critique of the market and developing a critique of law. And I think they're both pretty important. Um, the critique of the market is the thing that we talk about all the time on the show. And he says everything you'd probably guess. He's like, that's why we need to read Karl Marx, not so that we can ask ask Marxists what to think about our religion, but so that we can understand the economy. And Marx is an important guy who understands a lot about the economy, right? It's all the kind of stuff you'd, you'd guess, pretty boilerplate stuff. Um, the critique of the law is also very important, I think, because for Inkle Merit, uh, law and economy go together. And like we said in the last show, the last episode, um, he's writing after the context of Chile, where the authoritarian government of Pinochet, the dictatorship, was also, you might say paradoxically, but in fact, naturally predisposed to hyper privatization and neoliberalism, that these two things go together like an incredibly torturous regime and an obsession with, you know, the free market or whatever. And I think putting those two things together is important. And the way that Hinkle and Mary ends up talking about law is so fascinating because he basically uh, stumbles on, not even stumbles on, he articulates intentionally <laughs> uh, a position that is like essentially the same as what Giorgio Agamben talks about in all of Agamben's work. And I think it's a classic case of like, I guess the Eurocentrism of uh, philosophy and theology generally, but it's pretty remarkable to me that Hinkle Merritt is out here being like, we really need to critique the law. Paul actually has a pretty profound critique of the law in Romans. And like, what if Christians just got really into that? Like he was already saying that <laughs> from Latin America uh, in the nineties. Um, but everybody has to wait for like a wild Italian guy to get translated to, uh, to say it <laughs> in English. So um, I think there's something too about, you know, Hinkle Merritt pointing to the relevance of theology and also maybe showing some some paths that theology should go on. And I think the fact that he's anticipating these things that a lot of uh, theologians are just now really reckoning with uh, shows to why people need to like, I don't know, understand that liberation theology is still out there, and like still important to study. And it's not yeah. like part of the dustbin of history. Like there's a lot of forward thinking stuff uh, in that literature. <laughs> That's true. Um, any excuse not to read a gauntlet is a good <laughs> one. So, so take this one. <laughs> That's right. It's also way more fun. Reading Hinklemer is a lot more fun than reading a gambin tell you like a lot about uh, medieval laws. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole de like a deconstructionist path too there. Right. Of people interested in talking about the law. Um, and and I mean, they even do it in the kind of the same way that Hinklemer mm -hmm. is talking about too. So. All that's say <laughs> you can skip that reading. <laughs> that's great. You know, it's it's funny that you say that, though, uh, because at the very end of the essay, Hinkle, his his closing paragraph on this extremely weird um, piece that covers a lot of ground is just to, like, complain about how postmodernists are wrong, which I think is great. Extremely funny uh, an undeveloped kind of idea that he just tacks on as like an appendix at the end of his argument. Um, but I think it's pretty fascinating because he's he's making an argument very similar to what a lot of uh, so-called postmoderns would also do. But he's rooting that argument in like political struggle instead of, I don't know, here's like a bunch of weird stuff I found in the archive of like a Roman library, which I think is a maybe a more important st place to uh, to start that critique, even if you end up in a similar place. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Um, well, at the end of this, uh, what do we get, Dean? What's the takeaway? What are we wrapping up? and taken away <laughs> to our friends. <laughs> uh, what are we putting in the big macaroni pot right. of uh, this episode? Right, right. Um, well, I'm going to put in um, a big noodle that says political economy and another big noodle that says law. <laughs> I think um, it's important to, to maybe just um, heed Hinkle Emeritus' uh, warning that like theology on its own um, can't get you to, you know, to a liberation movement. 
um, you got to like put that theology in dialogue with actual movements and with people who are trying to understand them and figure out why they're fighting. That's what I would say. What, what do you think, Matt? What is how does St. Clement catch up? No, I think that's good. Um, yeah, you, you can't. You got to be specific. You have to you, you have to say who owns the means of production <laughs> in your theology or else I don't want to read it. So there's the noodles and the cheese and it's all in there and uh, bake that into a big delicious pie in your oven at uh, 200 degrees Celsius and it'll be great at the end. And uh, also, if you made it to the end of this episode, I just want to say before anybody else does, you've been Mungo. You've been mungo Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Magnificast. If you support us at $2 or more, you get an invite to our secret, cool Discord channel where folks have been organizing some great churchy small groups if that's a thing that you want to lean into uh then that's where you can find it um i have still not been a part of one because of my hectic crazy life but i I swear i will (laughs) join one at some point (laughs) i have to i have to do it um even the time difference i've gotta i gotta come through also uh by the way i i posted some uh new ernesto cardinal shirts on the Redbubble store and they're also uh i put them in the discord and i bought some for myself and i wore one today to the grocery store and the security guard as i was checking out said uh who's that on your shirt and i said a great poet from nicaragua ernesto cardinal and he said i love poetry i'm gonna check that out so it's a great evangelism strategy (laughs) i wore it exactly one time ernesto cardinal uh, our patron saint he'll be with you if you do get one of these great t-shirts that's amazing. Yeah, I need to buy one. Um, that sounds great. I need um, it's really cold here in case you didn't know. And I need to get some uh, some sweaters. So maybe I'll get like a great sweatshirt uh, with Ernesto Cardinal's face on it to confuse all of the Scottish. <laughs> they would they would love it, I'm sure. Um, what? Oh, you should join the discord. You should join the Patreon. The, the cool thing about the discord is that it's not like bad. It's good. <laughs> um, it's a community of a community of listeners. You're always con- contributing things in fun ways and i appreciate it probably the best part of the magnificast honestly so jump jump on in there um our intro music is by amari armstrong the outro music is by the logical spoon and we'll see you next time i don't want to get up for church in the morning church in the morning souls alive Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.